Chapter 18 of The Tickencoat Treasure by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 The Silent Man's Warning. Philip Riley, whose energy seemed indefatigable, although he was yet half an invalid, left me next morning and returned to town. In council, in my airy little bedroom with the attic window embowered by creeping roses, we arrived at the conclusion that he would have more chance of success in gaining information than myself. Therefore, I dispatched him to London in order to keep an observant eye upon the address in Sterndale Road. For several reasons, I remained in the neighborhood of Caldecott. First, I was apprehensive lest Purvis and his associates, for I felt convinced that he was not acting alone, might make a forcible attempt to investigate the manor house. It was quite evident they suspected that the treasure might be hidden therein, otherwise they would not have been in treaty for a lease of the place. When they knew I had forestalled them, their chagrin would, I anticipated, know no bounds. Hence, I felt constrained to remain on guard, as it were, until I could take possession of the place. Those warm autumn days were charming. I had brought with me a camera, and, as excuse for remaining in that rural neighborhood, took photographs. I found many picturesque pastoral scenes in the vicinity, and wandered hither and thither almost every day. The Countess of Cardigan kindly permitted me to photograph on her estate, and I took many pictures of the beautiful old hall at Dean, one of the most imposing and historic homes of Northamptonshire, the park, and the picturesque lake, which was once the fish pond of the monks, when Dean was an abbey and Carp were the weekly fair on Fridays. To Laxon Hall, to Fineshade Abbey, to Blatherwick Park, to Apethorpe Hall, the noble Jacobean seat of the Westmoreland family, and to Milton, the fine Elizabethan house of the Fitzwilliams, I went, taking pictures for amusement and endeavoring to make the villagers of Rockingham and Caldecott believe that I was a photographic enthusiast. Truth to tell, I was not. I entertain a righteous horror of the man with a camera, and if I were Chancellor of the Exchequer, I would put a tax on cameras as upon dogs. The man who takes snapshots can surely afford to pay seven and sixpence a year toward the expenses of his country. Letters from Riley showed that, although he was keeping a careful observation on 14 Sterndale Road, which had turned out to be the shop of a small news vendor, he had not been able to meet the gaunt, fair-mustached individual whom we knew as George Purvis. The days passed, for me long idle days when time hung heavily on my hands. Nothing occurred to disturb the quiet tenor of my life in that rural spot until late one evening when I was walking along the high road from Caldecott back to Rockingham. There had been a garden fete given by the vicar, and in order to kill time I had attended it returning home later than I had anticipated because I had met Mr. Kennaway, and we had gossiped. He had found another house and was to move a week later. The Sonde Arms at Rockingham is by no means a gay hostelry. It is quiet, old-fashioned, and eminently respectable. Roisterers and hard drinkers like Ben Nutton were relegated to a tap at the rear of the premises and were never encouraged by the innkeeper. It was past eleven o'clock, a dark, overcast night, and as I trudged along the road to Rockingham, lonely at that hour, I was wondering what success Riley had had in London. For some days I had received no word from him, and had become somewhat anxious, 
for it had been arranged between us that he should either write or wire every alternate day so that we should always be in touch with each other i had traversed nearly half the distance between the two villages and had entered the part of the road which passing through a spinney was lined on either side by oaks which entirely shut out every ray of faint light so that i was compelled to walk with my stick held forward to feel the way the complete darkness did not extend for more than a hundred yards or so but as there were i knew deep ditches at each side of the road i guided myself with caution suddenly without warning i heard a stealthy movement behind me and ere i could turn i felt myself seized by the coat collar in such a manner that i was unable to turn and face my assailant while almost at the same instant i felt other hands going over me in front my wrists were held while my money was carefully extracted from my pocket and my wallet probably because it was believed to contain banknotes was also taken from me i shouted but no one came to my assistance i was too far from either village so dark was it that i could not distinguish the thieves but i believed there were three of them the hands that held my wrists were soft as though unused to manual labor but the muscles seemed like iron i was utterly powerless and even though i shouted again and again no single word was uttered by the robbers they made short work of my pockets save that they did not think to feel inside my waistcoat where in a secret pocket i generally have there i carried a serviceable colt i however had no opportunity for self-defence because when they had finished i was run backwards struck violently on the head and tripped up into the ditch at the wayside while they made good their escape fortunately i fell upon my hands and managed to save myself from going into the water in an instant i was on my feet revolver in hand standing on guard but as i stood with ears strained to the wind i heard the sound of footsteps hurrying in the distance and from afar off there came to me a low ominous whistle the fellows were probably tramps but i knew quite well that they were a desperate party for in the struggle i had grasped a formidable life preserver which one of them was carrying it was a pity that the darkness was too complete to allow me to see their faces no doubt the final blow on the head had been delivered with the life preserver and was meant to stun me but fortunately it did not the attack had been so sudden and complete that for a moment i remained stock still then angered that i should have fallen so completely into their power i walked on to rockingham i prized my watch and chain as a gift from my mother long since dead they were not valuable indeed no pawnbroker would have given three pounds for the lot therefore the hall of the thieves had not been a great one so far as value was concerned having reached the sonde arms and related my unpleasant experience the village constable was called and i gave him a description of the property stolen from me i expect they were tramps sir he said just lately i've noticed several suspicious-looking characters loitering in the neighborhood and sleeping under haystacks they mostly come from london i made some inquiries a couple of days ago at an inn in lyddington where three of them had been drinking and learnt that by his companions one of the men is called bennett bennett i repeated wondering for the moment in what connection that name had been impressed upon me then i recollected the scribbled warning of the mysterious man beware of black bennett what you tell me is very interesting i exclaimed to the constable i think that in all probability this man bennett had some connection with the theft if found i hope the police will question and search him 
I may be mistaken, but I believe that individual is well known by the appellation of Black Bennett. I gave the constable the description of my watch for circulation, and then, after a long chat with my host, the innkeeper, went to bed. The days went by, but no word came from Philip Riley. I wired to his father's house at Upper Tooting, but received a reply expressing surprise and stating that Philip had not been seen for ten days. A telegram to Mr. Stafforth brought no more satisfactory reply. Therefore, as the Kennaways were to give up possession of the manor in a couple of days, and my presence there would be essential to guard against any interlopers, I resolved to run up to London. My anxiety for Riley's welfare increased when all my inquiries regarding his whereabouts were futile. According to Mr. Stafforth, the young man came there in a great state of excitement about nine o'clock one evening. He was dressed in his oldest suit, wore a golf cap, and carried a stout stick. He said that he had made certain inquiries regarding Purvis, had seen him, and talked with him. But that night, he intended to make a bold bid to get at the secret of our enemies, and, if possible, to obtain possession of the all-important document that had been sold by the drunken Nutton. He had taken some whiskey and water with his uncle, and left about ten, without saying in what direction he was going, or explaining all that he had found out. He told his uncle, however, to inform me to be forewarned of a man named Bennett, and had explained his silence by saying that at present it was not wise for him either to wire or write to Rockingham, as there was someone there acting the spy. This then accounted for his silence, but after his departure from his uncle's house that night, nothing had been seen or heard of him. I called at my own rooms in Chelsea, where my landlady met me in great excitement. Not knowing my address, she had been unable to write to me, but it appeared that one evening, three days before, someone had quietly entered the house with my latchkey, ascended to my rooms, and ransacked everything. Now, my keys had been attached to one end of my watch chain, and had therefore been stolen with a watch. The entry had been made on the night following the robbery from me, and although my roll-top writing table had been opened and all my private papers and letters tossed about, I missed nothing. The thieves had been in search of something, probably of that parchment book of Bartholomew de Chorno, which, fortunately, reposed in the strong room at my bank. All this, however, showed the ingenious and desperate character of our rivals. They would, I felt convinced, hesitate at nothing in order to obtain possession of the treasure. The strange disappearance of Philip Riley had now grown alarming. I made inquiries at the bank in Lombard Street, where he had been employed, but none of his friends there had seen him for weeks. His father, who was a manager of a large linen warehouse in Cannon Street, was equally anxious as to his welfare. We were playing a dangerous and exciting game, and my only fear was that, having made one or two discoveries, he had become too bold and acted with the indiscretion of youth. He had, however, always seemed clear, level-headed, and cautious, and his father expressed a belief that he was not the kind of young man to fall into a trap. I watched the small news agents in Sterndale Road, Hammersmith, having sent an envelope with a blank sheet of paper within addressed to Purvis. I had arranged that Mr. Kennaway should remain at the manor a few days longer, and now turned my attention to finding the man who had bought the secret. Riley had discovered him. Why should I not be equally successful? 
but although i waited in that street two long never-ending days i saw no tall fair man enter there that some serious misfortune had occurred to philip riley i felt convinced but of what character i dreaded to contemplate twelve days had gone by and not a word had been received from him by anyone mysteries of london are many and profound End of chapter 18